see, after defining the obstacles to samadhi and the negative states which accompany them, he is telling us about various methods of meditation that we can use to get rid of those. And he spoke among others about meditating in the void retention in pranayama. He spoke uh, about using the harmonious activity of the senses. He spoke about meditating on the spiritual light, on the real spiritual light. And I have kept last time a whole, uh, whole discourse about how this spiritual light can actually be mistaken for some minor astral manifestations of light. And now he continues, other methods that will eliminate these obstacles of the mind and which therefore will encourage the attainment of samadhi. So, the sutra number 37, he continues with this enumeration listing of methods. Or else, he says, the mind can be brought under control by making passionless persons the object for concentrating the mind. Therefore, uh, just to explain what he means here, in the ancient meditative traditions, symbols of the Ishta Devata, which is one's own tutelary deity, and of the Guru, have been used as they represent an idea of some power transcending the human passions, or of someone who has already achieved this state by the force of sadhana. This is a very important idea. In Tantric Yoga we use this extensively. In other forms of Yoga it is used less, perhaps a little bit into the direction of the Guru veneration, which is such a classical uh, keynote in Indian Yoga and even in uh, Tibetan Yoga. But... Um, the story with the Ishta Devata therefore being more complicated. Basically, here the idea, if we take the resonance, energy, engineering, and if you prefer, why not the tantric idea behind this, it is very clear. If another method for reaching a state which is beyond sorrow, which is beyond disturbance, which is beyond agitation, is to actually focus your mind intensely, on something or someone who is there already. This idea being uh, basically an idea of identification. Patanjali has said, and I have, we have not insisted yet because Patanjali did not come to that full power, but we have said in the beginning that whatever the mind focuses upon, the mind takes the shape, which is a very metaphoric way of speaking, the mind assumes the shape of that something, the comparison being exactly as a transparent rock crystal, assumes the color of a flower or of a piece of cloth near which it is put, although the, the crystal itself is transparent by nature. Therefore, the mind, if the mind concentrates on the spirit, then the mind becomes spirit, and that is the liberating samadhi. But if the mind concentrates on parts of the body, objects, ideas, perceptions, this or that, the mind becomes those. What does this tell us, to us? This tells to us that the mind is automatically identifying. The mind is a monkey. Whatever it looks at for a long time, it becomes that something. This is illustrated 
so beautiful in the initiatic movie The Holy Mountain of Alexandro Jodorowsky, <coughs> where this young man who is a symbol of a virgin soul, of an unexperienced soul, he participates into this big show which is called the Great Circus of the Lizards and of the Toads, and after we witness a very uh, atrocious scene in which they are involved, the toads and lizards, then this guy, when there is only a ruin left of all that podium, of all that demonstration table, this young man is in the middle of it, croaking like a frog and crawling like a lizard, which simply says, he identifies with what he sees. In this way, actually, we are all learning things. I don't know, it goes as deep as the children when they learn things. How does a child know how to react when it touches something hot or when it falls down? Or If you look very carefully from the standpoint of Ajna Chakra, you are going to see that children, when they fall down and hurt themselves, they first look at the others to learn how to react at them. In the beginning they are in a state of puzzlement, of bewilderment, of shock, and they don't know if they should cry, if they should laugh, if they should behave normally, and then usually it's the agitation and the anxiety of the others which determines a reaction. It is uh, very much to say this because it's like ignoring completely the physiological basis of some things, but I don't want to go into the full details of it, what I am trying actually to suggest here <coughs> is that we are always stealing things. I'm looking sometimes from the standpoint of Ajna Chakra at all kind of <coughs> images from the movies of the world and I can see very clearly the way the subconscious mind, the collective subconscious mind shines through the movies. Like there are some reactions which are so prefabricated Every time when a man or a woman has this emotional reaction, they react like this, like the classical paradigm from the stupid romantic movies, when a guy says something or does something to a woman, and the woman slaps his face. It's like it becomes boring in the end, what kind? It's, you know, it's a stereotypical reaction, in kind of we can see that everybody is copying it from the minds of the previous generations, and that there exists this idea that, well, that's how you should react. Something like this you should do when you are stepped over your toes. But somebody could say, hey, what if I start suddenly whirling in circles, or, you know, doing something completely unexpected? You know, why should I react in a stereotypical way? Every time, well, let's take the classical thing, a man tries to kiss a woman, and the woman slaps him on the face. It's kind of, it's Every one of you has seen this scene in at least ten movies. It's a completely stereotypical thing, which is something which is marked in the collective subconscious mind, and this is a samyama. It's like everybody identifies with this pattern, and people react like lemmings, blindly, without thinking, without... It's just a mechanical reaction, exactly like Gurdjieff said, that the human beings are robots. Whatever they do, they copy. It's a robotical reaction. It's not the supreme self. It's not the absolutely creative, spontaneous, original, infinite, Purusha-like reaction. It's a reaction which is copied from other people's minds and behaviors, and in this way the humanity keeps sharing the same behaviors which are copied, like in this effect of a hundred monkeys. If a hundred monkeys do one thing, then all the rest of the monkeys start doing that thing. <coughs> And therefore, 
what I'm trying to get here is this. The mind copies things, and I could have continued with those examples, but it's enough for now. The mind copies the things telepathically, we can say like this. And therefore, this function is more what is called in modern yoga in English, is more called an identification, that the mind identifies with things. If you look at a black dot on the wall, or if you look into a yantra, or if you focus on something, you become that something. How much are you going to become that something? Well, depends on how intense your concentration of the mind is, and for how long time it lasts. That's all it takes. And therefore, what I'm saying here is very clear. Patanjali then says, if such is the power of the mind that it identifies with everything, what will happen if you identify with somebody who is in a very high state of consciousness? Won't you do some sort of telepathic identification? Even if that is 1% in the beginning. But if I'm taking the famous photography of Ramakrishna Paramahamsa in Samadhi, and I look at it without blinking for 10 minutes, and I try to merge with it, would I not get something out of that? Even 1%. If I can get 1% from the state of Ramakrishna in that moment, wouldn't that be amazing? Actually, that is what it is. Patanjali says, let's put it again in the way I have translated it here, Patanjali says, or the mind can be brought under control by making passionless persons, which means enlightened beings, passionless persons, persons who have surpassed their domination by passion, the object for concentrating the mind. Focus your mind on something rotten, and you will resonate with the rottenness of it. That is the general law, the generalized law of resonance. Therefore, here the yogis are very careful. If you look at Ramakrishna and you are going to get something from the piece of Ramakrishna, and more about this in a second, then automatically if you are looking at a photo which symbolizes something demonic, inferior, terrible, you are going to get a photo of that. You are going to get a resonance with that. The same thing is about music. The same thing is valid about reading. For example, when you read a book by Ernest Hemingway, you get in resonance with the mind of Ernest Hemingway. What is the catch? Well, the guy committed suicide. He was a wacko. You don't want to get in resonance with the mind of Ernest Hemingway because he was an unhappy person who ended in suicide. Therefore, a good yoga guru would tell you don't touch Ernest Hemingway because look at Ramakrishna's photo. Burn the books of Hemingway because they inspire suicide, even if Hemingway did not intend that, but the resonance is with the mind of a suicidal person. People can say, yeah, but the suicidal person is a very interesting thing sometimes. Right. If you want to dabble in this kind of mud, be welcome. The yogis don't make these kind of compromises and they say, if you have time to go a million years through samsara and waste your time bumping your head in all the ups and downs, go for it. But if you want to take the shortcut, you will avoid all these pitfalls because they are a waste of time. Somebody has been there, done that, and you can learn from that already. And that is why you should understand from this the opposite as well. What if you put a demonic symbol in your room on the wall and you look at it all the time? What if you take uh, the photo of whatever, this guy, Lavey or whatever his name is, the 
president of the state and his church of America and put it as a painting in your room, as a portrait in your room. What if you take the photo of Che Guevara that you may accept as a great revolutionary, but who was a terrorist, a murderer, a exploding man and whatever else he was? Therefore, the problem is very clear. You become what your ideals are, actually, and that is why the yogis say you can appease your mind if you focus your mind upon those who are there. Can you recognize them spontaneously? No. That is the tragedy, because if Ramakrishna Paramahamsa is in Sahasrara, you will look at his photo and you will not feel anything. The first time when I looked at a photo of Ramakrishna, 25 years ago, when somebody talked to me about Ramakrishna and said, you know what a great spirit this was, this was the real thing, and so on. And I read about him and I realized, wow, this man should have been something really amazing. Then I look at his photos, my first reaction, even before thinking about what I said, was that I told to my teacher who showed me that thing in that day, <coughs> I just smirked like this, and I simply said, this guy looks like my grandfather, which means he's a peasant, he's a farmer. He looks just like a stupid farmer. And my teacher said, you haven't looked right. Look again and give yourself some time to look in this photo. Then I discovered that the photo which I was looking at, and which was one of the rare photos of Ramakrishna, there are three or four of them all in all, was actually a photo which Ramakrishna himself said, everybody should have this photo in their homes and look at it, because it was taken of me when I was in a state of extreme spiritual aspiration and effervescence, and this photo will transmit to everybody who looks at it, a great spiritual awakening, a great spiritual aspiration. Could I recognize that as a rookie? No, I could not recognize that, but today I can see it very clearly. And therefore, this is the catch. You don't see it, and therefore you look at a photo of Ramakrishna, it doesn't look as thrilling as a photo of Jean-Paul Sartre. You look at a photo of Shivananda, uh, Ernest Hemingway looks more cool. You look at a photo of Mananda Mai, you prefer Madonna in your room. You look at a photo of I don't know whom, Swami Lakshmanju, you would rather have a photo of God knows what dude, Michael Jackson or something, in your room. This is where it goes, because we resonate on our dominant chakra. If you, like per, if you are on Svadhisthana, your photos in your room will be photos on Svadhisthana. You will not have the photo of a single Buddha in your room, because it doesn't fit with your state of mind, and you don't feel it. It's like something abstract. It's boring. It's disturbing. Che Guevara, at least, was a cool guy. He wrote the motorcycle diaries, and he was a cool guy who wanted freedom and revolution, or whatever he wanted. And in the process, he just uh, killed a few people. What the heck? Everything has a price, right? And therefore, what I'm trying to say here... It is that this principle is actually very important. If spirituality can be transmitted through a photo, then automatically this says a lot about the resonant energy of our universe. That is why the people in the old days, especially the yogis, and there are yogis of India and Tibet still who do this, they don't want people to take photos of them, and even more so to film them. And especially when they are in high states of consciousness, because they know that the high states of consciousness can be copied, actually, by this act. That is why I remember I once was together with 
a friend of mine who was a clever guy, and we went to somewhere in the mountains to a, one of the high Christian mystics who was extremely advanced in the art of prayer, and he was famed to have reached the divinization state, the enlightenment state, through the art of prayer, and this guy was extremely scrupulous, morally, ethically, very diffident on anything which was an infringement on all these uh, rules by which he lived. And uh, at some point, my friend is asking him, would, we, would you be agreeing that we take a photo of you? And this guy starts objecting and saying, there have been some assholes who took photos of me and then they started selling them out there and I don't want to make a photo for anybody who will make money on my photos and so on. This is not a business and I abhor being taken photos of. So then afterwards I hear that somebody made business of it. And okay, my friend kind of bewitched him and told him, look, I promise I'm not making, I will give to anybody who asks, who is here and knows, I'm not going to sell them, I'm not a businessman, I'm not even from this village or town or anything, I'm a visitor and I'd like to have a memory from you. And the guy continued refusing for a while, saying, why don't you take a donkey and write my name on it and take a photo of it and say that's me, you know, because he said, what am I, I'm nothing, I'm just an old man a rotten old man and so on. Okay, my friend knew all the things that these guys camouflaged themselves and uh, he kind of insisted. Okay, he accepted. He took a photo. He said, okay, you can take a photo. And he kind of stayed and he took a photo. And then my friend came uh, hard on him and he said, would you now please agree that I could take a photo of you when you are in a high state of prayer? At which the reaction of this guy was amazing. He was a very tough old man, hardened and everything. And he giggled like a child when he heard this one. In the middle of it, his eyes popped up like this and he said, ah, Smart devil, he said, like this. And then <coughs> he recomposed his composure and he said, Ah, these kind of things cannot appear on films and on photographic things and so on. This is something you are completely wrong in asking such a thing or something like this. But he was caught off. Uh, on, on the wrong foot for a second and yes, they actually can be because everything is resonance and therefore these kind of things can be there that's why most yogis in the old days they didn't want because so many of them in their aura they had paranormal powers they had all kind of siddhis and riddhis and things like this and they knew if I give this photo to somebody and if they just spend two hours every day looking into it they will get what I got it is samyama and it's kind of pre-digested food. It's like I can give it to everybody and it's too easy. And therefore it's a taking of karma. And it's a lot of trouble which comes with this. And therefore they avoided. There were some who even used their powers of mind to prevent it from happening. In the book of Yogananda, you find out that when the first guy tried to take the photo of Lahiri Mahasaya, Lahiri Mahasaya destroyed his film. And then the guy said, look, I couldn't take a photo, you veiled my film. And the guy said, well, are you trying to take photo of the immortal spirit on your stupid camera and so on? And after he scolded him, this guy asked for permission. But please, let me just take a... Okay, okay, the guy said, I, if you ask like this, like... There is a whole story. The Native Americans from North America, when somebody took, when they took the first photos of them, and even when they made sketches of them and drawings of them, like painting... They thought, they said that their souls were stolen and they were put on that piece of paper and that, that somebody can do witchcraft on it. I remember 
even 25 years ago when I was going, suddenly one of my tantric teachers shows me a gypsy woman who was very special from the standpoint of the tantric resonance of her aura and then this guy says, wow, this woman has some magic properties and we go and talk with her and we find out that she is indeed a very, very special woman and then this friend of mine says, would you allow us to take a photo of you? And then this woman suddenly steps back because she was into witchcraft and shamanism and things like this. And she said, no, you can make magic with photos. You must be kidding. You know, it's like, I'm not going to give my photo to you because I know what photos can be used for. And therefore, remember that this story with the photos is an amazing gift of modern times if you learn to use it. They didn't have it in the old days. In the old days, the Knights Templar who in spite of all the um, beautifying things which try to be said about them today, were nevertheless doing a lot of black magic things. The Knights Templars, they had a technique which they applied several several times for getting rid of their enemies. And their technique was using a special meditation in which they had to be present at least 400 nights. And that was that they should get hold of a painting or of a drawing that's in 1200 Uh, We're talking about the deep Middle Ages when there was no photography, just a painting, and probably a rather primitive painting, of the person they had as target, like for example somebody who was an enemy of the order of the Templars, and they would put that, they would hang that painting on the wall, and 400 Templar knights would look into that painting, and pray that that person should die. And that person died in a few days. That is the power of resonance. If a painting can do that, How much more can a photo do that? This has been demonstrated in radionics. In radionics and radiesthesia, they have made decades of experiments in which they show that a photo can be irradiated and transmit the effects to its originator if the negative, the cliché in the normal photography process. You take a photo, you make a negative film, from the film you make a photo. If the film still exists and it has not been burned or destroyed in any other way, then you can do this transfer. And actually they have made radionic devices which work just by this principle. That is why, funny enough, photography is an amazing gift. And the bigger amazing gift is that in the modern times, finally, some very spiritual people, and perhaps the first of them will be Ramakrishna Paramahamsa still, and then others like Ramana Maharishi, Ananda Mai, Shivananda and others, they have accepted to have photos of themselves taken, and some of them they even accepted to have photos of themselves taken in yogic accomplishments. Like there exists a beautiful photo of Swami Shivananda in meditation. Do you want to see what meditation feels for an accomplished yogi like? Meditate, look 20 minutes without blinking or winking in the photo of Shivananda, in meditation and try to become one with it. The better you concentrate, the more a mysterious feeling will arise in you and you will feel something which is not yours, which you are actually borrowing from Shivananda. This makes a whole yoga. You could do a whole yoga just with photos. This is an amazing, another amazing possibility of the technology of the 20th and 21st century. Not to mention that you can have vocal recordings Not to mention that today you can have video recordings as well with some of these rare people left. Perhaps one of the most amazing photos ever is of course the photo of Ramakrishna in Samadhi. 
There is a photo which they took of Ramakrishna when he was in ecstasy. He was completely gone and his nephew was holding him by the elbows so that he shouldn't shouldn't fall down and break something, hurt himself. Because if they would have let him, he would have simply fallen down. He was completely gone in ecstasy and in a standing position, but he had to be propped by somebody because he was out of there. Therefore, that photo of Ramakrishna, instead of Madonna's and Michael Jackson's, that should be on the wall of every yogi, because when you feel a little bit depressed or tired, you should look for ten minutes into Ramakrishna's photo when he is in Samadhi. Then you are going to get completely charged up by a spiritual energy which is amazing. The same thing is valid about the photos of all the wonderful ones, Sri Aurobindo or Manandamai or others and others, especially with the photos. Yes, we have paintings of Abhinava Gupta, but we don't know how realistic a painting actually is. But when we are coming to the photo age, we are having an amazing possibility there. That is why, remember that the whole yoga can be done with this, just with this thing. If you, per, if you spend time doing samyama on chosen photos. Of course, there are other yogis who have other capabilities. There are even photos of yogis from India while levitating. Technology says that if you would meditate on that photo systematically hours every day, you would also start levitating because you would start copying their accomplishment. Therefore, everything is possible through this. Here, Patanjali speaks only from the standpoint of acquiring the mental peace. If Ramakrishna Paramahamsa was an ocean of peace, then by making Samyama with him, you will acquire the same ocean of peace. This is the principle. If Jesus knew God or was God, I, by becoming one with Jesus, will see what he saw, will reach what he reached, will feel what he felt. And in this way, this is like a two-step process, a transition. This is an amazing thing, given the fact that that Patanjali wrote this thing 2,000 years ago, when there were no photos, and he still understood the importance of the images. Okay, they did not have so many paintings in those days. What did they actually have in those days? What is Patanjali thinking of? when he says about, when he says this thing. The most comprehensive thing, the most widespread image which they had in those days were actually the statues from the temples, the divine statues, which sometimes represent great yogis, like you can have a statue of Ramakrishna, or you can have a statue of Tirumular, or God knows who, but at the same time, you are having statues of the famous deities, that's why the Vyasa, the, the commentator, one of the great commentators of Patanjali, he says you can use the photo of the guru, of your guru, like a model. You can use the photo of any other great yogi who has reached there. And again, you have to be sure that they have reached there. Here, we are risking to become politically incorrect. Like, uh, for example, I will tell you a personal, a simple personal opinion, so I don't stand to provoke more than on a personal level. You can say, oh, great yogis of whom we have a photos. Swami Shivananda, yes, right, Swami Shivananda. And then somebody who is a 
fanatic follower of the Hare Krishna train says, and also Swami Prabhupada, Srila Prabhupada, the founder of the Hare Krishna. I'm sorry to say it, but as it looks from the standpoint of a yogi doing Samyama, by focusing on the photos of Srila Prabhupada, you don't get anything about Samadhi. By focusing on the photos of Ramakrishna and Mananda Mai and Ramana Maharishi and Sri Aurobindo and others, you get it. Therefore, a yogi can immediately identify what is what by this Samyama. You simply look for half an hour and you will know. Well, not if you are a beginner and if it's the first time, because then there will be wishful thinking, there will be no term of comparison, you will be a beginner and the result will be very feeble, there will be a lot of factors, but if you have been doing Samyama for two years every day with the photos of great spiritual beings, then after two years when you take a photo, you feel immediately, my God, this person is so powerful on Ajna Chakra. I remember once I have seen, I have been in a place which belonged to another Indian originated sect, which was just that, a sect, a bizarre cult, and uh, I was like together with a couple of friends, and we were completely disappointed of the brainwashed levels of these guys and where they were going, and suddenly one of them who was a more open-minded person, he said, by the way, guys, I have been recently to a workshop held by this Japanese Zen teacher who is talking something about this and this. And, in the, and it was just a photocopy of a material, not even a real photo. And in the moment when we looked at the photo of that Japanese guy, just, just a photo as small as this, boom, it's like somebody put a nail in your forehead, so strong the Ajna Chakra was coming from that little photocopy of a photo. Therefore, what I'm trying to say here, this art can be developed, and it is an art which I recommend to all of you, to perform this identification. In the later chapters of Yoga Sutra, Patanjali comes back and he calls this identification Samyama, and he describes more in detail of what it consists, although even there he doesn't actually speak practically how to do it. Practically, the things are like this. What you keep your mind focused on firmly, your mind becomes like It's just a matter of time. Therefore, a classical theory, a classical procedure for performing Samyama is exactly like this. You take, let's say, the photo of Ramakrishna and now I would like to feel like Ramakrishna. What is the first thing that I have to do when I want to feel like Ramakrishna? First of all, I have to forget about myself for a few minutes because my ego is my biggest obstacle. Uh, something in me says, I am Ramakrishna, I am Ramakrishna, I am Ramakrishna. And something in you says, bollocks, no, no, I'm Johnny, I'm Johnny, I'm Walter, I'm Walter, I'm not Ramakrishna. Therefore, you have to knock down that little thing which says, I am Walter. Therefore, the first step to be done is that you have to tell to yourself, okay, for 15 minutes, I forget about myself, I'm not myself, I'm just the supreme self but leave the personality and all the egoistic things about me outside. I want to kind of forget about me and my super important person for 15 minutes. And then I'm looking, when I manage to make this peace and void into myself, you are going to say, hey, you have to be pretty good at yoga already to be able to do this. Right, that's why Samyama doesn't work exceptionally for beginners, but it's something which is not zero or hundred percent, it's not black or white. There are many, many levels, you are somewhere in that gray zone, 
I can only guarantee that by practicing, you will become better and better at it, even if you are lousy in the first day. That's the rule of any practice. Therefore, you put yourself out, and you look at Ramakrishna's photo, you are a man, you are a woman, it doesn't really matter, and you simply start looking, getting absorbed, being totally there, and something in your mind imagines that I am standing in the same position, I am being there, I am being that person, I have become one with that person. And then mysteriously, suddenly, click, I start feeling amazing things. My crown chakra opens, I can feel energies running through my body, and it's obvious then that something is coming, that I am actually contacting another reality. Therefore, this is what Patanjali speaks about, that you can actually steal somebody else's spiritual realization, which is an amazing trick in itself. It is an amazing trick which can shorten a lot the, your spiritual efforts. And that is why it's so precious that some compassionate spiritual masters of the 19th and 20th century, they have accepted to leave their photos, they have accepted to be taken photos of, I'm telling you that in the first century, in the 19th century when photography appeared, and much in the 20th century, much after the Second World War, still in the 1950s and 60s, there were yogis of India and Tibet who were vehemently opposed to anybody taking photos of themselves, because they knew that they could, that there is a transfer. A man like Ramakrishna, when he accepted that, he knew that he was actually giving himself to the world. It was an act of self-offering that he did by accepting that photo of his to be taken and knowing that it will become a universal thing. It's a gift of compassion. It's a spiritual gift of mercy and compassion that somebody has accepted this. And now it seems for you normal. Oh, people have taken photos of Osho and of Mahananda Mahi and of Aurobindo. You don't know what it involves. Remember that people before a time, before a certain year, they did not accept this by understanding fully the potential which is involved into this. The gift is that this gives you a possibility which is amazing. That is why any intelligent yogi can make for themselves a set of A4 photos of great yogis in exceptional states of mind and for focus on them every day. Every day, today on Ramakrishna, tomorrow on Mahananda Mai, the day after tomorrow on Ramana Maharishi. And like this, all the time, all the time, learn something, because it is so much faster. This is a trick in which you take it pre-digested. You take it directly from somebody who has worked hard for it and obtained it. And it's a gift. Very few people realize the importance of this gift and how far this method can go. I'm calling your attention again that the same thing works, unfortunately, into the negative and demonic directions. So, as easily as you can get contaminated with spirituality by Ramakrishna, so easily you can get contaminated with shit by others who represent that part of life. And therefore, you should be aware, you should always know what you want to surround yourself with. And uh, another thing to be said here is... As I said, Patanjali did not refer to photography because they didn't have it in that time. How many paintings of great yogis did they really have? 
not so much. When we look back at the Indian art from 2,000 years ago, there were not so many miniatures of great yogis and stuff like this. Then what was Patanjali speaking about? Okay, some people can say he spoke about a sort of mental representation. If you don't have a photo, then maybe you can do Shambhavi Mudra with an image or something which you have seen. Right, even that is possible and it's an amazing exercise. But people say, what if you can't do Shambhavi Mudra? What did they have 2,000 years ago? They had the statues from the temples. That's what they had. That's why they have been made. All these anthropomorphous things were not just art. They were objects of concentration. All the Shiva Lingams, all the Quartz Lingams, all the Yonis, all the symbols, all the triangles, all the diagrams, and yes, all the anthropomorphous representations of Kali and Nataraja and others, they were actually meant to serve as objects for concentration. And this has been discovered by so many others. Here is a quote, an approximate quote, of course, from Seraphim of Sarov. This is a Russian Orthodox saint from the 19th century. Saint Seraphim of Sarov, who lived somewhere in the north of Russia, he was asked, what are, since you seem to have reached such an amazing state, <clears throat> which, of course, he didn't say. He was humble. But <clears throat> since people acknowledged him as being such a great saint and such a realized human being, they asked him, what do you do when you go in church? The Russian church, especially in the early centuries, 19th century, and then further up the history, 18th, 17th, had a specificity. They were spending many, many, many hours in church. People who have traveled to the courts of the Tsars in the 17th century, 18th century and stuff, they were amazed because the whole imperial family, the Tsar, the wife of the Tsar and the children of the Tsar, they were spending approximately five to six hours standing in church every day because there were six religious services per day and the fashion was that you had to attend them standing and those six religious services per day took sometimes up till nine hours per day. And the Tsar's family was joining all of them without exception. Those people spend nine hours in church every day. One of the things is which you get to ask yourself is what on earth will you do if you have to stand in a church for hours? Here is the answer from Saint Seraphim of Sarov, who never studied yoga or heard about it, but who answers like a yogi. Saint Seraphim of Sarov said, when I'm going in a church and one of these long services starts, I am staring without blinking at one of the beautiful icons of Jesus, our Savior, and I stay like this for one, two, three hours without moving. As long as they read the service and they do the chanting and whatever they do, I look at the icon of Jesus. And if I cannot find a good icon of Jesus, I take a candle, because there are many candles in the church, and I look in the flame of the candle without moving at all. This is exactly what I am speaking about, and the one with the icon of Jesus is a Samyama. Any one of you has the curiosity to see why Jesus is Jesus, why don't you start a little bit of a tapas, that for 50 days from now, you take a beautiful Byzantine icon of Jesus, really beautifully made, one of the real good taste ones, and you start focusing on it 30 minutes without blinking, trying to become one with Jesus and see what's happening. Therefore, then you will suddenly understand where that power is. 
And therefore, that's exactly what Patanjali says. In their time they had not icons, not so many paintings, they had some, but they had very much statues. Those statues were sometimes representing yogis, but sometimes they were representing symbolic forces of the universe, like Nataraja Shiva, which represents a certain aspect of the divine consciousness, or Kali, the black mother, which represents the force of the almighty time, of the all-pervading time, and other such symbols. And therefore, they looked upon those symbols because they realized that those symbols represent high levels of consciousness. They realized if you look at Nataraja and if you become Nataraja, then what else is there to say? Are you in Samadhi when you are in Samyama with Nataraja Shiva? Of course, you ought to be. And therefore, here is the most simple yoga. Take a Nataraja image, sit in front of it, and look into it without blinking and merging with it, until you reach Samadhi. Hours every day, until you reach. That's what Patanjali says. You can calm the obstacles of your mind by identifying with those who have reached already, as he calls them here again to come back to the text. You can bring the mind under control by making passionless persons the objects for concentrating the mind. Therefore, this is very, very clear and it opens an entire avenue, especially in modern times with the advent of film, videos, computer images, 3D images and all kind of unimaginable things. Try to realize if those people could obtain such effects just with a stone carving or with a painting, clumsy painting sometimes, how much you can do when you have a photo or a holographic photo or for God's sake, today you can take somebody who is supposed to be an enlightened being, a fully enlightened being, and take even a 3D photo of them. The difference is absolutely colossal, and it simply means today we are getting it like this, right directly in the mouth. You don't even need to chew on it, because it's chewed already. But the people, 2,000 years ago, they worked on the little which they had, and they obtained much. And the people today, they have almost everything at their disposal, and they are unable to use even that little which they have. People a thousand years ago would have died, the yogis of India and Tibet, if they would have had a photo of Ramakrishna in Samadhi, they would have died, because that photo is worth invaluable spiritual treasure. You just have to look at it every day for a number of minutes. That's all you need to get inspired. Today people have the photos of Ramakrishna and the 16th Karmapa and Ramana Maharishi and Mahanandamai and they put them in an album and they never look at them. Therefore learn from this that you can boost your yoga incredibly if you use these kind of things and you can use all kind of other ideas. I remember when I was young and started yoga and discovered these kind of things I got completely frantic. I was going through all the photos. I took all the collections of magazines, for example, and simply selected all the most significant photos that I could find. I, for example, wanted to teach and to help to the women who are in yoga the different typologies of shaktis. And I remember even now, I took the whole collection of the Parimach magazine of my mother and chopped it with a scissor to every single significant photo of a woman who was very feminine, very powerful, very charismatic, very this and this. 
Then I took all that pile of photos, and together with one of my good friends and with my yoga teacher of then, we spent the whole night taking photo by photo and making some yama on it, and saying, this woman is activating on Svadhisthana sub-level number 4, it's a good arousing and so on. This is a woman who is having an arousing of Manipura and Vishuddha Chakra, very rare arousing for a woman. Okay, we give and we simply made like a library of images for any woman who says, wow, I would like to develop my Manipura. Do you have any archetype of a woman who is very Manipuristic? Here are ten photos of ten very Manipuristic women. Look at them without blinking ten minutes every day and slowly, slowly you'll start developing that. It's kind of a lot of things can be done. I remember I consulted all the art albums of Indian art, and there were not so many, unfortunately, in those days in Romania, and I've taken all the photos of art and this, and I've taken every single statue, all the Apsaras, all the Gandharvas from all those famous temples of India, taken photos, enlarging them, putting them, and saying, what is this goddess? Okay, let's meditate. Samyama, and we meditate on this goddess, and we find out that Vishuddha is getting very activated. And the caption under the photo says, this is a carving of a Gandharva from the Konarak temple, and so on. Okay, so the Gandharvas, according to these guys, their deities, their goddesses, who had Vishuddha very activated, their goddesses of Vishuddha chakra. This is the kind of work, this is the kind of, that's why I'm stirring you with this, be alive in yoga, I'm opening doors for you, I'm giving ideas. Very often I notice that people are flat, they are not having initiative. That's the kind of spiritual life that I want you to see having. I would like to see somebody here making collections of images, of photos, of films, of this, of voices, of great yogis, of this and that giving them to the others, giving them to the world, making possible for other people. This is the life of yoga, and especially when you use these modern methods. It's amazing what can be done. Again, technology has many flaws, and it has polluted our planet and done a lot of things, but there are a few places, such as the yoga of the dreams, and this samyama, photos, videos, audio, music, the yoga with music, which are some great gifts which we can use in yoga from technology today and by which we can shape our spirit. Therefore, here Patanjali is clear. You can obtain that by identifying either with Ishta Devatas. Let's make clear this concept because I feel I have skipped uh, the explanation. There exists a concept which is called Ishta Devata and is valid for the Tibetans also but they also have a Tibetan name for it, which I don't remember now. The Ishta Devata is translated usually in the English text, both from Tibetan Buddhism and from Hinduism, as tutelary deity. Tutelary deity is an idea which says, each and every spiritual seeker, each and every yogi to be in this room, has actually has a tutelary deity. What means a tutelary deity? It means that according to your astrological sign, according to the development of your chakras in your previous lives, according to all the sadhana which you might have done until now in this life or in others, according to what your spirit and soul is, you actually have developed, because nobody develops equally, equally. You, might, you have developed something, a chakra more than the others, an aspect more than the others, like some people are more like warriors and competitive, while some people are more like, <clears throat> reserved and retired or whatever you'd call them like withdrawn would rather be a word for it 
And therefore what I'm trying to say here is everybody represents a certain archetype. Well, the yogis of yore had the claim, and it is still happening today, that they could discover somebody's tutelary deity. Like they would look at that person and they would say, you are in resonance with Kali, which simply means your strongest resonance is Kali, which will say automatically Kali is your tutelary deity. Not everybody's. Her tutelary deity is Ganesha, and his tutelary deity is Tripura Sundari. And therefore, we are actually uh, having a typology for every person, which is expressed by a tutelary deity, which means the archetype of consciousness and energy, which is closest to what your essential structure is. And when you have been told such a thing, then automatically you knew, wow, I have to work with this, because this is what will give me the fastest result. Therefore, uh, yogis, young aspirant yogis of India and Tibet, they chose their tutelary deity as, some, as their spiritual protector. If somebody said, okay, my tutelary deity is Ganesha, it means I have all the time to pray to Ganesha, to meditate with Ganesha. Ganesha is my daddy, simply. Ganesha is the one who will always come faster, fastest, protect me, help me, inspire me, and therefore I will rely mostly on Ganesha. Ganesha being nothing else but the personification of a cosmic force, of a principle, of a certain energy and state of consciousness from the universe. Therefore, that's what Patanjali says, you can meditate on images of great enlightened beings, of gurus, because the guru is sometimes the closest to you, it's somebody whom you know personally and whom you can use for this, or the Ishta Devata. You don't want to do that, Take an image of Kali, if Kali is your Ishta Devata, and meditate exactly in the same way. Take a beautiful, inspiring statue or painting of Kali, look into it without blinking or winking 20 minutes per day, become one with it. The most advanced, the more advanced from here would say, well, can't you do that with the mantra and yantra? Sure, but that's an initiation and not everybody has had the gift of having that initiation. That's for people who have good karma and who have already received such initiations. For the bottom line is that you can always use something like this, these images. And therefore, this is where I'm getting. Patanjali says, such symbols, such images, such as Ishtadevata images, representations of the gurus, photos, today we say, photos of great masters and others, they can be used for eliminating the obstacles of the mind. This is very significant. Please meditate deeply upon this, because this opens an entirely new avenue in your approach to yoga. And the next sutra, Patanjali goes saying, or, the mind can be steady by giving it the knowledge of the dream and sleep state for support. This statement is, of course, very clear. The mind can be controlled by developing the method of conscious dreaming and conscious sleeping, lucid dreaming, conscious sleep, which is called nothing else but nidra yoga or by some yoga nidra. So here Patanjali says, another method for obtaining the removal of the obstacles and cleaning the mind of these obstacles and negative effects is practicing the awareness of the dream and of the deep sleep. Therefore, exactly as Patanjali has mentioned in Sutra number 36, the light, the supernatural light, this archetypal light, thus substantiating 
Taraka Yoga and a few other branches of yoga, exactly as Patanjali has mentioned, the harmonious activity of the senses, thus substantiating the path of Tantric Yoga, the expansion of the senses, exactly as Patanjali has mentioned, the arresting of the breath in void retention, thus substantiating the path of Pranayama, now Patanjali gives, uh, subst- gives support, credence, to the path of Yoga Nidra. He says, also, a way of disciplining the mind is obtaining the awareness of the dream and of the deep sleep, which is a classic constant in yoga. From the Kashmir Shaivism of Akhinava Gupta and going up in history to the Upanishads and the classic texts, you will constantly find reference It's true, it's very discreet and not technical. Here in this school we teach you technically how to do it, because there is a technology of the Yoga Nidra. But you will find everywhere in the Indian and Tibetan mystical literature, references to a yoga of the dreams and of the deep sleep, which has been taught to you already in a primitive form in the first months, when you have learned about Nidra Yoga, and parts of it are being taught later, throughout the yoga courses and sometimes in some workshops which deal with astral projection and things like this. Therefore, here Patanjali gives another alternative. If you don't do that or together with that or another version is by giving it the knowledge of the dream and sleep state for support. This is very, very clear. The Sutra number 39 expands even more by telling us, or, by meditation according to one's predilection, mind can be steadied. This is a shocking sutra in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. Some authors say, or by meditating upon that which seems good to you. But many people say, oh for God's sake, this sounds almost like New Ageish. It's kind of, yeah, or you can meditate upon uh, whatever sounds good to you. This is an incredible license given by Patanjali, who simply defines meditation eventually almost like a free act. He says, meditate on anything, but just meditate for God's sake. Meditate, meditate, meditate. Only meditate, because it doesn't matter on what. You can, can somebody says, can I go to a cinema and just watch a movie uh, let's say a Rowan Atkinson movie and just keep my eyes like this and watch it in a meditation state yes you can, I have seen yogis who could do even that, therefore there is all the possibility of meditating almost on anything but this sounds a bit idealistic, I can tell you that in reality I have seen it applied very seldom the spiritual madman that was Rajnish Osho Rajnish or previously known as Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, he describes a situation in which he taught a guy uh, who apparently could not concentrate. There comes a guy to him and says, I need to concentrate and I need to do some yoga, but actually I cannot concentrate and I am completely non-spiritual. And Rajneesh being a playful uh, nature, Sagittarian nature, he comes to this guy and he decides to make a little experiment. And he says, look, I understand that you cannot concentrate on all this yoga crap, and just tell me what thrills you the most. What is the thing which obsesses you the most? Which is the most beautiful thing that you would always see. 
And you guess what the guy's answers. He says, women's tits, boobs. When I see tits, I would be able to look at them for hours at a stretch. So Rajneesh says, it's very good. We start from this. From now on, every time you are going to do the exercise, which I recommend to you, you are going to imagine that you suck a tit. Imagine the most beautiful female breast that you can have, and that you just purse your lips like this, and you suck from it. But, of course, you will suck air. So you just make... But imagine that you suck a woman's breast. And you have to concentrate on that. Just stay like this hours and make... <laughs> and just suck that woman's breast, which you can see in front of your eyes. You can even look at the photo to inspire you. And keep sucking. And this guy reports some absolutely incredible effects after three weeks. Because he was sitting all day long and sucking that breast. That's what he... He liked it so much... So here it is, you can meditate on a woman's breast if it does the job for you. But the thing is to get absorbed, to go beyond this monkey mind, to go beyond this instability, to be able to go somewhere where there is deep, where there is stability of the mind. And that is why this Sutra of Patanjali is showing ultimately how tolerant Patanjali is. Patanjali seems to be very rigorous and sometimes he is very strict on some things. But in the end he accepts, hey, the mind is infinite. Maybe you come from Greenland and for you what is holy and not holy is not the same as for me. Then how should I teach you? Therefore he says, or else, meditate according to your predilection. Right, you are Christian, right. Maybe Patanjali says, I have never seen an icon of Jesus because uh, it didn't make it to my place, you know. Uh, would you like to meditate with an icon of Jesus or something? Be my guest, do it. If it is good, if it is spiritual, if it is your predilection, use it. Yoga is not only about the Hindu symbols. It's not about only the Buddhist symbols or anything. It's about any symbol which is real, inspiring, which is the real thing. Many people say, well, how do I know if it's the real thing? Well, you should have the common sense, right? Because, again, I said, it's a Samyama, the tree is known by the fruits. Then if you are making an identification with, uh, I don't know what, theoretically you could make a Trataka in an identification on a photo of Joseph Stalin, but I think nobody would be as crazy as making an identification with that, because the poor bastard is in hell right now, and therefore you are not going to get anything brilliant from making some Yama with Stalin, on the contrary. Therefore, of course, applying common sense you already can find some directions there. Therefore, in the end, Patanjali says, it's an amazing sutra, because he says meditation according to one's predilection. Even, it's not important really what it is. The Zen masters used to say, you can enter in Satori looking at the corner of the house, because there's nothing sacred about the corner of the house. What is sacred is your mind, that you stop, and you get absorbed into it. The Zen masters, they have developed the famous tea ceremony. In the tea ceremony, the whole thing is to focus on the tea, and on the drinking, and on what is so important about a cup of tea. Well, the concentration, the absorption, the meditation, the perfect focusing. It's not about the tea. It's about the ritual, and the participation of the pure consciousness. It's an exercise of mindfulness. It's an exercise of awareness. If you can enter in samadhi because you drink a cup of tea 
And if you can enter in Samadhi because you look at the corner of the house, not to mention a sunset or Ramakrishna Paramahamsa entered Samadhi first time in his life when he looked and he saw white storks flowing against dark clouds, purple clouds, stormy clouds. How many people have seen white birds flying against dark clouds on the background? Many, but Ramakrishna entered in Samadhi when he saw that. Therefore, the matter is not what you see, but how you see it and how deep you go. Surely, there are some predilect things through the law of resonance, but else, remember that if you have a predilection for something which is good, spiritual, then you can use that as a background for your concentration, and it will work. And the Sutra number 40, I'll continue a little bit because we started later, and I want to reach there. Patanjali now starts drawing the conclusions. He just gave us the method, and in the Sutra number 40, he starts drawing the conclusions. I remind to all of you that this first chapter is called Samadhi Pada. It's a chapter about Samadhi. He started from the beginning. He took us through some detours, but all the time he speaks about how to reach the state of Samadhi, and which are the state of Samadhi, and what is the whole thing. Then you are going to see that in the chapter 2 he speaks about the practice. It's called Sadhana Pada, how to do the practice of this. And in chapter 3 he starts speaking about the results of that Sadhana practice, intensive spiritual practice. So the sutra number 40 concludes, so, so if you do one of those things, control over the dreams, white light, uh, pranayama in void retention, taraka, all the things which I have said here, concentration on the devatas, on the ishta devatas and so on, the yogin gets, so, the yogin gets mastery over all objects ranging from the smallest atom to the infinitely large. This is a grandiose statement which refers first of all to the arousing of Agnya Chakra. Agnya Chakra or the third eye is called the command center. The word Agnya is translated as command. Why command? Because Agnya Chakra has command over all the forces of this manifestation. There is nothing which cannot be commanded from Agnya Chakra, from the third eye. And therefore, since Patanjali here speaks so much from the standpoint of the third eye, automatically says when this meditation reaches perfection, one is ruling over the mind, and he or she who rules over the mind, rules over the universe, from the tiniest atom to the largest object, to the infinitely large. Therefore, the first thing tells us that actually with this one can activate Ajna Chakra, and with this one can obtain mastery over the manifestation. This is eloquent in itself and says everything which needs to be said, but this sutra is hiding another little trick to it. The fact that Patanjali mentions the infinitely smallest atom to the infinitely large, and it is an absolutely verified scholarly thing that the ancient Hindus in the Vedic culture already they spoke about galaxies and atoms, and nobody really today can fathom how on earth did they know about atoms or galaxies. They speak with incredible ease about time and space, which is valid at the scale of the atoms or at the scale of the galaxies. And, of course, the consensus in yoga is that those people knew about these things 
precisely because they made yoga. A typical statement, and I think Patanjali comes again to it as far as I remember, a typical statement which is taken over many yogis is that the yogis who focus on Ajna Chakra, among other things, they obtain the incredible power of zooming down to the scale of the atom and thus understanding the atomic quantic structure of matter and then zooming out to the scale of the universal and galactic and thus understanding the macrocosmic aspect. These two capabilities are both related to Ajna Chakra. That is why remember whenever you have yogic perceptions about atomic or galactic space which contracts or expands and nor mostly, these, these are all perceptions from Ajna Chakra. And that is why they have been codified by the yoga tradition of India and they have been preserved as such by the Tibetan yoga under the names as two of the greatest paranormal powers which are obtainable by the mind. The, among the many paranormal abilities obtained by the mind, eight of them are classified as Maha Siddhis, which means great paranormal capabilities, and they are called so because they are way, way beyond the daily experience, and they are so vast and so almighty, that in the daily life compared with this mundane life that people live into, they are simply too big, much bigger than nature, and you really don't find anything you could use them for, because some of them are like you could spin the universe on your little finger, and then what has that to do with the universe which is like this? These Mahasiddhis are in number of eight, always remember that in yoga they are related to Ajna Chakra, only those who perfectly arouse their Ajna Chakra can ever hope to reach to such a level. Perfect arousing of Ajna Chakra is a city in China, right? It's an amazing concept, it's a gigantic concept, and the yogis consider that from this arousing of Ajna Chakra, there proceed the eight Mahasiddhis. The first two of those eight Mahasiddhis are called respectively Anima and Mahima, which mean actually the power of the atomic and the power of the galactic. Anima means the capacity to go, it's not like the anima from modern psychology, it's in Sanskrit, and anima in uh, Sanskrit, it means the power to zoom at the level of the atoms, thus the yogis have been able to identify the quanta, the strings of today, and amazing other things which today are only rediscovered by modern science, and most of them just more like a theory, but without actual possibilities to demonstrate some of those things, <clears throat> the yogis perceive them through introspection, through Ajna Chakra, and thus they understood the atomic, that's what allowed them to even identify that the universe is like the atom, that the atom is like the universe, and that actually the consciousness exists even in an, in an atom. The yogis have considered that the smallest unit of consciousness applies actually to atoms, that is why one of the biggest theosophical authors uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, she wrote a book which was called The Consciousness of the Atom, because even the atom, according to yoga, according to the ancient yogic literature, even the atoms have a consciousness. How did the yogis fathom this one out? It sounds like science fiction, it sounds like imagination, rich imagination, speculation. 
Well, the yogis have got to this through the arousing of Ajna Chakra, the third eye. That's the power. First to zoom into the atomic, and then the other opposite one is to zoom into the macrocosmic to understand the galactic, to understand the universe. As you are going again to see that Patanjali comes back to that one also and tells us a few amazing facts about that. Therefore, remember that all these perceptions, and that's why modern science, when going in quantum mechanics, which goes into the microscopic, or going into the relativity theory, which goes into the macrocosmic, they are actually making mental experiments on Ajna Chakra. That is why to be able to understand what Einstein said, or to be able to do, to see what Einstein saw, and to reproduce his things, you have to have a very powerful Ajna Chakra. To be able to understand quantum mechanics, you have to have a development of Ajna Chakra. That's why Albert Einstein, with the risk of sounding arrogant, said in the time of his life, he said, I don't think that there are more than ten people today on earth who truly understand, that was in 1930s, who truly understand what I'm telling in the theory of relativity. And the truth is that with Ajna Chakra you can see it. If not, you can just repeat it, learn it, but you will not feel it. Albert Einstein reached to the point that although he didn't know mathematics and he was a poor student in university, he could feel it and thus he went ahead through intuition. This intuition from Ajna, this supramental power, he actually reached beyond the rational calculations of some mathematicians and technically oriented scientists. And that's why what I'm saying here, that is the understanding of the microcosm and macrocosm. It's from Ajna Chakra, either you go to the quantum or to the relativity levels, and it appears very clearly from the Vedic literature that the yogis of India and Tibet who have been, all of them, very good and working on Ajna Chakra. They have actually gone there, and some of them had managed to explore those realms of consciousness. Some of the witness of the great yogis about time, space, structure of matter, energy, universes, are so amazing that you are asking yourselves, how did those people get there? The answer is again and again, Ajna Chakra and Patanjali confirms this. So, such, in such a way, the yogin gets mastery over all objects, ranging from the smallest atom to the infinitely large. That's why there is a hidden meaning in this sutra, referring to this special capability of Ajna Chakra. And I will stop for now here, uh, because in the end, Patanjali makes the final classification of the forms of Samadhi, and I would like to leave that aside as a separate topic. So we'll stop the discourse here. We'll just spend a few minutes now in the end meditating on Ajna Chakra to deepen some of these truths. And then next time when we meet, we'll talk about, we'll conclude the first chapter with Patanjali's description of the forms of Samadhi. Please prepare for a few minutes of meditation. You may use the mantra Aum as I have taught you the other time or any other modality that you know or like for activating Ajna Chakra. So let's peacefully meditate in Ajna Chakra to absorb some of these deep meanings. <laughs>